Now we come to a high and holy place in our worship where we address God in prayer. Will you join together in prayer? Your Majesty, Your Royal Highness, we stand in awe of you. As the prophet Isaiah said in our call to worship, who can know your wisdom? Who can sound out the dimensions of your grandeur? But please, dear God, grant your spirit so that we may experience that which is beyond our vocabulary. That we may soar in the galaxies of your greatness and savor the sumptuousness of your splendor. Give to us a deep stillness that will drown out the clamor and noise of our world and even of our own voice inside our skull, insistent as the rotor blades of a hovering helicopter. Since your Holy Spirit is totally and absolutely conversant with every nuance of your fatherly heart, grant that he may communicate new riches to us so that it may be true that that which eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man, may be part of our experience. Reveal, please God, your splendor in the hallowed pages of your infallible and trustworthy word. We ask for a spiritually tangible fulfillment of the promise that those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And from that still place where only the beat of your heart is heard, where only the thrum of your voice is heard, from that sacred place, let us hear your word in such a way that our lives are overwhelmed with contentment. That serenity becomes our natural state of mind. And we ask this, Lord, not just for ourselves, but for our loved ones and those going through hassles in our spiritual family. And I give you, give you now one minute just to rehearse in your mind and maybe whisper the names of those you are praying for, your own family, friends, neighborhood loved ones perhaps scattered around the world. You are God of the great silence and in you we find that our loneliness is turned to solitude and in you our hearts find rest thank you for hearing our prayers for we offer them in the great and powerful name of your son Jesus Christ who is our Lord Amen we're going to do something a little bit different today we're going to look at God's university of hard knocks and 
do a flying run through the book of Job. I'm going to read large portions of the book. It's a great comfort to a preacher to read the word of God because you can't really mess up, whereas in your sermon you can mess up really badly. (laughs) There are some days when no doubt you feel like that. (laughs) You've been henpecked and the circumstances have plucked the feathers off your wings and some evil in the air sucked the feathers right off your chest. And some have been feeling like this for a long time already. There is a bridge in Venice that connects the palace of justice with a prison. It's this covered bridge with little slot windows looking out over the glory of Venice and the canals. It was a prisoner's last look at the world before he descended for life into a lightless dungeon. The poet John Keats gave it the enduring English name of the Bridge of Sighs. For many, that is an apt metaphor of where they find themselves right now in their lives. One woe doth tread upon the heels of another. The future seems like a descent into a dark and dank dungeon. And the only blue sky is seen through a, a barred window. So Job speaks to this situation very realistically. Just a little background, Job is considered by many scholars, probably a majority of them, to be the earliest chronological book in the Bible. In other words, the one that was written first. That means it was written before Genesis. So we handle it with awe because it was written when the Egyptians were using hieroglyphics in the pyramids. It shows us that the struggle with evil and suffering was the first subject to engage human authors. The story of Job is most instructive, and as we follow it, we will weave our own lives into the tapestry of life circumstances. Just a little bit of background information. There are two scenes. The one is Job here on earth. He knows nothing about the drama behind the scenes. He is in the dark and he is struggling to comprehend what is going on. He feels helpless and he thinks he's a victim. And then there is, secondly, God in heaven. He is directing the drama on earth from behind the scenes. And everything is taking place in accordance with his well-devised plan. So as we go into an extensive reading, um, if you have your Bible, you may want to turn to Job chapter 1 verse 1, and we'll read right through to chapter 43 verse 16. <laughs> no, I'm only kidding. I'm going I'm to chop out large parts of it and explain it briefly as we go through. So here's the introduction to Job. There was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 
500 teams of oxen and 500 female donkeys and he employed many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. Every year when Job's sons had birthdays, they invited their brothers and sisters to join them for a celebration. On these occasions, they would get together to eat and drink. When these celebrations ended, and sometimes they lasted several days, Job would purify his children. He would get up early in the morning and offer a burnt sacrifice for each one of them. For Job said to himself, Perhaps my children have sinned and have cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan, the accuser, came with them. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. And Satan answered the Lord, I've been going back and forth across the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and will have nothing to do with evil. Satan replied to the Lord, Yeah, Job fears God, but not without good reason. You have always protected him and his home and his property from harm. You have made him prosperous in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But take away everything that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, you may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. One day when Job's sons and daughters were dining at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabaeans raided us, they stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. And I, I, I only am the one who escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. And I am the only one escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting. 
Suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the desert and hit the house on all sides. The houses collapsed. All your children are dead. I'm the only one escaped to tell you. Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground before God. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb and I will be stripped of everything when I die. The Lord gave me everything I had and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin by blaming God. One day the angels came again to present themselves before the Lord and Satan, the accuser, came with them. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. And Satan answered the Lord, I have been going back and forth across the earth watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and will have nothing to do with evil, and he has maintained his integrity even though you persuaded me to harm him without cause. And Satan replied to the Lord, Skin for skin, he blesses you only because you bless him. A man will give up everything he has to save his life. About take away his health and he will surely curse you to your face. All right. Do with him as you please, the Lord said to Satan. But spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence. And he struck Job with a terrible case of boils. From head to foot. Then Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery. As he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him. Are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job replied, You talk like a godless woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So in all this, Job said nothing. When three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. Their names were Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. When they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. Wailing loudly, they tore their robes and threw dust into the air over their heads to show their grief. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights. 
No one said a word to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. So here's the opening scene of the book of Job. Job is sincere. That's very evident. There are no answers. He's got no clue as to any of the background to his life. And these three friends provide a model of support for grieving. Take note of that. You often say, I don't know what to say to grieving people. They don't hear what you're saying anyway. So just sit down with them and be there and stay with them as long as it's necessary. In chapters 3 to 23, Job and his friends wrestle with this whole issue of his life and of his suffering. They are flowery speeches full of metaphors to things of their time that confuse us. There's a lot of good things in there, and it's rather confusing. I myself took about 15 years before I finally fathomed what this book is all about. But then we get to chapter 23, and finally Job is fed up. He's had enough. These friends now are not of much help. They've all gone all preachy on him and are telling him how to run his life and giving him advice which is totally worthless. And they started so well and went downhill so quickly. And they say some great things like this in Job chapter 22. This is Eliphaz saying, Job, submit to God and you will have peace. Then things will go well for you. Listen to his instructions and store them up in your heart. And if you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. So clean up your act. If you give up your lust for money and throw your precious gold into the river, the Almighty himself will be your treasure. He will be your precious silver. This is to a man who's lost everything. Then you will take delight in the Almighty and look up to God. You will pray to Him and He will hear you and you will fulfill your vows to Him. You will succeed in whatever you choose to do and light will shine on the road ahead of you. If people are in trouble and you say, help them, God will save them. In the Almighty and look up to God. hands are pure. Now oh, that's... Truly a great statement with some amazing truth in it, isn't it? But it's entirely wrong in the context. It assumes Job's suffering is due to some sin, that Job must be guilty of something in particular, and if only he would repent and restore God to the throne of his life, he would be rescued. It's based on the false assumption that all of life is either a reward or a punishment. If things are going well, it must be because I'm living a good life and exercising faith and listening to God's word and staying obedient to him and he's blessing me as a reward. Or all of life is a punishment. If you're sick or undergoing some hardship or the other, well, it must be because you've done something wrong. And the answer is simple. Just repent. Now be honest with yourself. No hiding here. Hasn't this thought gone around in your mind for some of your hardships? Hasn't there been this question mark? I wonder if God is punishing me. 
And here I'll make a confession which is much worse than that. In my mind from time to time, when I see other people suffering, I've got that same sort of question about them. I wonder what they did wrong. I wonder what God's punishing them for. And then there are those times when you see really godly people going through terrible things. Let's say, for example, a really godly household sees the children go off on a tangent and take up a contrary lifestyle and get addicted and end up in terrible places. And we're so judgmental. Well, I am anyway. And the thought crosses my mind. I wonder what mistakes they made in parenting. You see, it's all completely false. But for the grace of God, that could be my children. But for the grace of God, it could be me suffering. And so this isolates us from other people. It isolates us in our minds and we feel isolated from God. God, where are you? We are asking. And Job here says he is groaning in thick darkness. Now notice God himself has testified that Job is an upright man who fears evil. He religiously follows the instructions of even sacrificing for the unwitting sins of his children. And the accuser, well, he is the one who is being shown to be wrong. And now God enrolls Job in the University of Hard Knocks. And there are two faculties there. The first one is arrogance. And the second one is insight. And now Job finally has had it up to here. And he gives the voice to his anger and frustration. You might read it in this sort of vein. Come on, God, where are you? I've had enough. Why don't you show up for me? So that's how he spoke. My complaint today is still a better one. And I try hard not to groan aloud. Oh, if only I knew where to find God. I would march up to his throne and talk with him there. I would lay out my case and present my arguments. And then I would listen to his reply and try and understand what he says to me. Would he merely argue with me in his greatness? Oh, no. He would give me a fair hearing, fair and honest People can reason with him, so I would be acquitted by my judge. You see, he's fallen in that same old trap. Something's wrong, I need acquittal. People can reason with him, something that's been misunderstood. If God were to acquit me and really see what a good man I am, the suffering would end and even be remedied. And now he, he enrolls in... Arrogance 201. He's looking for God, remember? Well, I, I go east. He's not there. And then I go west. But I cannot find him. I don't see him over there in the north anywhere. And when I turn to the south, 
I can't find him. But he knows where I am, so where is he? And when he has tested me like gold in a fire, he will pronounce me innocent. Nevertheless, his mind concerning me remains unchanged, and who can turn him from his purposes? Whatever he wants to do, he does. So he will do all he has planned. He controls my destiny. No wonder I am so terrified in his presence. When I think of it, Terror grips me. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. So that's the lesson of Insight 101. He's finally starting to say, who is God? Darkness, he says, is all around me. Thick, impenetrable darkness is everywhere. Why doesn't the Almighty open the court and bring judgment Why must the godly wait for him in vain? Because that's the worst part about it, when God is silent and missing. Isn't that the worst part of your pain and suffering? Well, he's only in Insight 101, so now he's going to become a sophomore. And You know, sophomore is a composite word made up from two Greek words, sophos meaning wise, and... More, meaning moron. That's exactly what sophomores are, aren't they? That's what I was like. I had got one year behind me. I knew a smattering of Greek and a little bit of Hebrew. And man, I was going to tell those freshmen all the answers of life. And I would even thumb my nose at the seniors. The first glimmer of insight sort of makes you a bit arrogant, doesn't it? And here he's still clinging to his bargaining method. Do you notice that? Why must the godly wait for him in vain? Why doesn't he open the court and bring judgment? We can settle all this in a moment. And so God enrolls him in insight 202. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Think about a hurricane, that sort of wind. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Well, tell me if you know so much. Do you know how its dimensions were determined and who did the surveying? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone stone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Oh, what a grand picture that is, isn't it? It just thrills your heart to think of it in that score. And so it goes on and on right through chapter 38. So you see we've skipped huge bunches of the book. And all of it is underscoring the fact that Job is earthbound in a celestial world. Job is egocentric in a theocentric world. 
Uh, Job is physically focused, whereas he's actually a spiritual being. So the issue is not that he's committed this sin or that sin or not atoned for another sin. The issue is he's missed the whole thing from the heart, being earthbound when he should be celestially bound. And you see, there are only two types of people in this world. There are those who are full of bulldust and know it, and there are those who are full of bulldust and don't know it. Being full of bulldust and not knowing it is where Job was. He was still saying, look, I'm an innocent man. I'm a man of integrity. I can prove my case in court. And so this revelation comes, and it is blinding in its brilliance. Insight 303. Then the Lord said to Job, do you still want to argue with the Almighty? So, you God's critic, are you? But do you have the answers? Then Job replied to the Lord, I am nothing. How could I ever find answers? I will put my hand over my mouth in silence. God, I've said too much. I have nothing more to say. Once you see God in his majesty and splendor and the grandeur of his being, this is where you will always end up with your mouth zipped. The apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapters 1 through 3 as all these people contending for righteousness, the pagans and the heathen and the religious people, but he comes to this conclusion, let God be God and every mouth be shut up. But God is not going to let Job off so easily. He may think he settled it now, He's made his point and come to a new understanding of God's sovereignty. But God is relentless and he says, let's continue this. You've got your audience with me now. Then the Lord answered Job from the hurricane, brace yourself because I have more questions for you and you must answer them. Are you going to discredit my justice and condemn me, so you can say you are right. Are you as strong as God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? All right then, put on your robes of state, your majesty and splendor. Give vent to your anger. Let it overflow Against the proud, humiliate them with a glance and walk on the wicked where they stand. Bury them in the dust. Imprison them in the world of the dead. You want to hand out justice in the world. Okay, Job, do it. Well, then even I would praise you for your own strength would save you. And that's the actual indictment of Job. The audacity. And now finally Job bows before God and his prayer is the prayer of a postgraduate doctoral student. Then Job replied to the Lord, 
I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? God, it is I. And I. I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. That's the place where God is leading us all. King David was a man after God's own heart. He went through the strife of being Saul's successor and Saul trying to kill him. The issues of being a king in a land of turmoil. He sinned greatly against God with adulterous eyes and murderous deeds. He, in his old age, had his own son rise up against him. And after all that turmoil and looking back on his life, this is what the man after God's own heart has to say. Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I don't concern myself with matters too great or too awesome for me to grasp. Instead, I've calmed and quieted myself like a weaned child who no longer cries for its mother's milk. Yes, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Oh, Israel, put your hope in the Lord now and always. What's it with a weaned child? Well, you see, a weaned child is satisfied. It's not looking for anything from its mother. It's not got a hungry mouth sort of looking around. It's lying contentedly enjoying the security and the safety and just being serene in its mother's arms. So is, in conclusion, two quick conclusions, is God an angry parent waving his finger at us saying, I'll make you suffer. I'm going to you a lesson you little brat no here Paul reflecting on his own suffering and if any believer ever went through terrible stuff it was the apostle Paul read about it in Acts and the book of Philippians where he gives his testimony and this is what he concludes about his suffering and we who with unveiled faces you notice that Job has had God's face unveiled for him we with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory and we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So no, God is not teaching you stuff. He's transforming you much bigger, much better, much more wonderful. You're a different person at the end of suffering than you were when you started down the road of suffering. Vastly different. So is Job, secondly, merely a powerless pawn in a chess game between God and the devil? <laughs> oh no, that's what the devil wants Job to think about himself. 
here's how God sees Job. And this is God's experience at the end. He's delighting in God. He's able to say, I'd heard of him, but now my eyes have seen him. The relationship is transformed and Job is a transformed man. And this distracted, distraught, frantic freak is now a weaned child looking trustingly into his father's eyes. And everything is different.